Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Well, hello and welcome. I'm Bill Glaskell at the Volcker Alliance, and this is Special Briefing. I'm joined by our co-host, Susan Walker of the Penn Institute for Urban Research. Hello, Susan. Hello, Bill. How are you today? Good. Ready to rock and roll? It's an interesting question we have ahead of us. Darn right. Off we go. So today, the subject is the U.S. economy and how things play out for our states and cities. Following the Fed's latest no-action decision on interest rates, will we see a hard landing, a soft landing, or maybe even no landing? But remember, as an S&P analyst observed recently, even a soft landing is a landing. So what does all this mean for states, counties, and cities? After the big pandemic recovery boom, which was fueled by $5 trillion in federal aid and COVID's retreat, we're seeing state and local tax revenues return to their historic patterns of moderate growth. Now, many states and municipalities use that boom to build unprecedented cash reserves to help them through any downturn. But there are challenges as well, like high interest rates, inflation, and a labor shortage, not to mention expiring federal budget aid, gridlock in Washington, and the risk that the economy may slow to a crawl or even shift into reverse in the first half of 2024, or maybe sooner. We've got a great panel of experts to discuss these issues, but first, a few words. We're coming to you live on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites, and also on the special briefing podcast. As always, we've taken your questions in advance, and we'll get to them in the second half. And of course, special briefing is made possible with the generous support of the Volcker Alliance, members of the Penn IUR Advisory Board, and the Century Foundation. Thanks to you all. And now let's turn to our panel. First, two great economists will set the stage for us. From Apollo Global Management, where he's chief economist, please welcome back Torsten Sluck. And from Denver, we'll hear from Kate Watkins, founder of Bright Fox Analytics and formerly the chief economist for the Colorado legislature. Next up will be another special briefing regular, Fitch Ratings Senior Director Eric Kim, who brings us the latest on Fitch's new report on state budgets. That'll be posted to our sites and the Penn IUR site, too. Drilling down for the view from one major statehouse, let's welcome Indiana Budget Director Zach Jackson. And from Philadelphia, we'll get the real deal on cities from Matt Stitt, the former Philly City Council CFO and a director on PFM's management and budget consulting team. We're excited to hear from you all. And now to get the discussion rolling, here's Susan Wachter again. Susan? Yes, well, thank you, Bill. And it's my pleasure to bring to the panel Torsten Slaw. Torsten is the moment-to-moment -moment keeping his fingers on what's happening with the economy. Most recently, we've had two feds, one weighing in St. Louis with recessions on its way, Atlanta saying growth. Torsten, tell us how you see going forward the economy at this moment of uncertainty. Yeah, so in summary, it's really quite simple. So during the pandemic, we got a lot of inflation. And the reason why we got inflation was that we were sitting at home ordering goods and those goods could not be delivered from China, from Mexico, from abroad. And as a result of that, we had a mismatch between demand for goods was very strong and the supply of goods was very low. So as a result of that, when demand was high, supply was low, we got a significant increase in prices, in particular in the goods part of the economy. Now, fast forward to today. Now the goods sector is more normal. Inflation has come down on the goods side. But now we are all going out instead and spending money on services. And remember, services makes up 80% of GDP. So a lot of money is now being spent on consumer services. And that means on traveling on airplanes, staying at hotels, going to restaurants, sporting events, concerts, Taylor Swift tickets, US Open tickets. We are seeing Broadway shows even still doing reasonably well. So now we have the problem that goods inflation is down, service sector inflation is up, and the Fed is still busy trying to cool inflation down. And that's what we saw yesterday at the FOMC meeting. Jay Powell is clearly saying we are not quite there yet, 
in slowing the economy completely because inflation is still at around 3-4% above the Fed's 2% target. So I would summarize, Susan, to your question that where are we in the economy at the moment? Well, the Fed is still in the process of slowing things down. And we are seeing delinquency rates going up on credit cards and auto loans for consumers. We are seeing default rates going up for high yield and loan com- meaning companies that are highly levered. But we're just not quite seeing any significant slowdown in the broader economic data. So the conclusion from what Jay Powell was telling us yesterday and the answer to your question is, we're still seeing the economy gradually slowing down and that process we should expect to continue over the next six to nine months. Slowing down. Thank you, Torsten. Let's turn to our next panelist, Kate Watkins, who is the president of Bright Fox Analytics. Kate, do you see that as well, slow down? And what are the implications for the states? Thank you, Susan. Yes, absolutely. I, I think we're we're seeing a very clear slowdown, uh, especially turning to labor markets. Job gains, we're still adding jobs, but at a much slower pace. And some of the, the fundamentals and looking across the different industries, we're seeing some softening across, kind of across the board, which would indicate some clear slowing. I guess I'm perhaps a bit more bearish and do expect there to be not only necessarily a slowdown, but probably a recession within coming months. I think irregardless of recession or not, there are some important implications for states and local governments when it comes to our revenue streams. So with the slowing of the economy, we have slowing revenue, both on the the consumer side, which translates to our sales tax base, and on the income side especially with with business income. I think, if anything, states are are poised to really see some of those, the leading indicators or or that real-time data coming in. And sometimes that is some of the best indicators of on the ground what's happening in the economy before other numbers are published. So really looking to that business income, those quarterly estimated payments, corporate income taxes, oftentimes are leading indicators of of what's about to happen in the broader economy or or real-time indicators of what is happening in the broader economy. We've seen slowdown, a slowdown in sales tax collections. We've definitely seen some, some weakening in some of those business profits. So that's already hitting states. On the local government side, of course, property taxes being kind of the biggest driver of, of the revenue base there. Home prices, of course, this is regional. So every region's got a little bit of a different story. But generally speaking, we've seen softening or, or a decline in home prices over several months. And then it's picked back up again in many areas. That said, it's, we're kind of, if anything, holding flat or bumping along the top. And so not a lot of expected growth there with the property tax base. So kind of our best case scenario across states and local governments is is flat or or really pretty slow growth in in those revenue streams. Some issues that we might see moving forward if if there is a more severe slowdown or a recession, state revenue streams tend to be more volatile than the economy writ large. And this is largely driven by uh, business income and and kind of a bigger volatility there. The tax structures tend to exacerbate downturns. And so you see just bigger declines in your income tax revenue relative to the economy as a whole. So even in a slowdown, we might we might actually see a decline in those income taxes, those business-related income taxes. So I think that that's something that, that states should be top of mind for states in, in planning for the next year or two. I don't want to take up too much time, but that would be my take writ large is the economy clearly slowing. Possibility of, of recession is up there in the near term. And no matter what, states are probably going to be a bit harder hit than the national economy as a whole. Thank you, Kate, for that overview. That's an excellent overview. And Eric Kim, we are now going to turn to you, Senior Director of Fitch Ratings, for Fitch and yours big picture analysis of where the states stand in these uncertain economic times. Thank you, Susan. Thanks again to the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR for inviting me back, of course. So Susan mentioned, I'm with Fitch Ratings. I manage the U.S. state government's team at Fitch. I'll take a few minutes to talk about our outlook and expectations for state fiscal conditions and some of the challenges that we see on the horizon for states, uh, building on some of the comments that have already been been made. So just to set the stage, Fitch's view is that state governments as a whole are in a relatively strong fiscal position. Regular watchers of these special briefings will know that tax collections have been just extraordinary for the past few years, pretty much across the entire country. Economic growth coming out of the pandemic was incredibly robust. A lot of that fueled with the $5 trillion that the federal government poured into the economy. And just as importantly, state governments were fairly cautious and prudent in their own fiscal management, recognizing that there was a considerable amount of uncertainty there. So 
budgets were, were generally built on conservative economic and revenue forecasts, which then set states up for large surpluses when actual collections blew right past those forecasts. So in terms of how the states have been using that money, it's been important for us to take a look at that and monitor that. And a lot of the use of surplus has been for capital, many, many large scale capital projects being funded or smaller scale projects that had not had the resources in the past, reserves being built up. If you take a look at data from the National Association of State Budget Officers, NASBO, you can see that reserve levels for states are now not just exceeding pre-pandemic, highs or even pre-Great Recession highs, but historical highs, where we're at unprecedented levels in terms of reserves for, for many, many states on a nominal basis and also as a percentage of their budget. So that was a key use of all that surplus revenue states received. But we also also saw growth in spending, particularly on the salary side and teacher salaries in particular, and then tax cuts, big moves there, looking at some of the data we've collected in 2021, there were 18 states that made tax policy changes, 31 states in 2022, and 24 this year. So the pace slowed a little bit, but still a very significant number of states making changes. And a lot of different approaches. We saw a mix of one-time measures, which aren't generally a credit concern. Large surpluses can easily support those kinds of moves on a one-time basis. The recurring changes always carry a bit more risk, though, because they build in more permanent changes to the budget profile. We still consider states able to absorb these changes. We expect them to be responsive to changing budget conditions. That's what's built into our ratings. And we're actually seeing that play out. Think about California, where tax revenues really plummeted earlier this year, and the state responded pretty quickly by dialing back planned spending on various programs, including using triggers that will allow the spending to be reinstated if the revenues bounce back. On the tax cut side, many of the most significant cuts we're seeing are being phased in over multiple years, which gives states time to adjust their budgets to fit a new revenue profile. That's the case in Pennsylvania and Georgia and Kentucky and Kansas and many other states that implemented large tax cuts, including Indiana, which I'm sure Zach will touch on or, or get asked about in a little bit. In terms of challenges ahead for states, there are a few things that we're monitoring. As I mentioned earlier, there's always a risk that when a state makes a fundamental change to its spending or revenue profile that projections don't always work out, the economy goes sideways or worse, and revenue collections drop more than expected. We do think states are very well positioned to absorb this potential volatility. Again, those historically large reserves and a very broad ability to adjust spending and even revenues, as I talked about with California, that, that timely action is key. That's a fundamental expectation on our part. The economic outlook, which we just heard a little bit about, is also a risk in our view. The growth so far this year has certainly outperformed Fitch's expectations. But there are some signs of weakness and slowdown, including in the labor markets, as was just mentioned, and in lending conditions. And Fitch anticipates much slower economic growth in the fourth quarter this year and actually a mild recession in the first half of 2024. When you look at data from the Urban Institute, the state tax revenue growth for states slowed earlier this year, showing some of that economic slowdown. The median rate of tax revenue growth for the year ending this June was basically flat versus a median more than 13% growth last year. Now, that said, we've seen some resilience there in the most recent months. States like California and New York, which had some of the biggest declines earlier this year, have actually been performing relatively well over the summer. You've seen withholding growth hold up, and you've also seen that on the sales tax side as well, those gains continuing. I do want to touch on, on one last topic that I think might be of interest to many of the viewers today, uh, Fitch's downgrade of the U.S. sovereign, and more specifically, what it means for our state and local ratings. So in terms of the actual downgrade, I think our research and commentary on that topic from our sovereigns team really speaks for itself. On the state and local government side, we do not make a direct linkage between the sovereign rating and state and local ratings. Obviously, there, there are a lot of common factors that are important to all of these ratings, most importantly, the economic environment. There are also some important differences and distinctions. And, and fundamentally, Fitch believes that state and local governments have significant fiscal autonomy to manage their own environment, to continue paying bondholders, despite what happens to the sovereign rating. So I'll leave my remarks there. I'm happy to take questions as we get towards the end. Well, thanks, Eric. We're going to get back to taxes in a minute, as well as some other big issues that, that you 
and Kate and Torsten have, have raised. But I just want to give you a little reminder that you're tuned into special briefing from the Volker Alliance and Penn IUR. The archive version of this and all of our past special briefings can be found on our websites or on the special briefing podcast. And now let's get back to business from the gorgeous state house in downtown Indianapolis. Let's welcome Zach Jackson. We talked a month or so ago. You were telling me about Indiana's recent tax cuts. You've taken out triggers on tax cuts. There are some members of the legislature who want to do away with the income tax entirely. How do you build a budget around this new reality? Where's the revenue going to come from? Yeah. Well, thanks, Bill. And let me thank Eric as well. He he set up my presentation, I think, here pretty well. And I got to admit, I'm not in the lovely state house today. I'm I'm working from home today. So it's it's my more modest background that you'll see here. It's your lovely home. It's your gorgeous. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's, it's beautiful too. Not the grandeur of the state house. So yeah, as, as Bill mentioned, we're working on a reducing individual income taxes in Indiana. And we also have a summer study committee looking at additional recommendations for restructuring our taxes. When it comes to our individual income taxes, Indiana already had a law on the books from last year, which was reducing those individual income taxes gradually from 3.23% down to 2.9% by 2029. This old law provided that if general fund revenue collections each year increased by 2% at least, then those tax reductions would be triggered. The way that played out is that the income tax rate would be 3.15% for fiscal years 20, or pardon me, calendar years 23 and 24, 3.1% for tax years 25 and 26, 3% for 27 and 28, and then down to 2.9% for 29 and thereafter. But the budget bill that was passed this past April reduced that individual income tax cut. It accelerated those cuts as well as removed those triggers. And so currently what we're looking at right now is a reduction from our current 3.1% down to or 3.15 down to 2.9%, but accelerated by two years. So that will, all those cuts will occur by 2027 now, based upon the new law. As I also mentioned, we have a legislative tax task force that's looking at state and local revenues with the goal of recommending potential changes. Currently, about half of our general fund comes from our 7% sales tax. We do not tax services in Indiana. A little more than a third of our budget comes from individual income tax revenue. And one of the stated goals of this committee is to look at if it's possible to eliminate the individual income tax. And just for what it's worth, our third largest tax source is corporate income. And although reducing the individual income tax is a goal of this committee, it remains to be seen how the state would deal with that $8 billion loss in, in revenues. Does that mean what we will cut spending by a third out of our general fund? Or does that mean that we will make it up in other tax types? Another complicating factor is that Although we bring in $8 billion a year through our individual income tax, we also have local income taxes and our state Department of Revenue collects those as well. And so if our state income tax goes away, it remains to be seen how the locals would you know, be made whole for that 3 to $4 billion a year that this, the, the state is collecting on their behalf as well. When it comes to our reserve balances in Indiana, we close the books on June 3rd or probably June 30th, 2023 with about $2.9 billion in our general fund combined balances. The way I oversimplify that is to say that we have a checking account that's the general fund, along with three savings accounts. Our checking account had about $800 million in it at the end of the fiscal year. And then our savings accounts had another $2.1 billion on top of that. That consists of about $400 million in our Medicaid reserve account, $650 million in our K-12 tuition reserve account, and then our rainy day fund had just over $1 billion. Our goal is usually to try to maintain 10 to 12.5% of our annual spending in reserve, and that number of $2.9 billion reflects about 13.3% of our annual spending. Just to put things in context, prior to the pandemic, Indiana's annual budget was about $16.5 billion. And this year, we will probably bring in 21 billion of general fund revenues, or probably 22 billion of general fund revenues, but we'll operate a budget of about 21 billion. So again, almost four and a half billion of growth in the last few years. And although we're seeing some leveling off in sales tax collections, our other revenues are still performing very well. Two months into this fiscal year, we're currently 1.7% over our revenue targets and 1.4% over to revenue collections for the same point last year. 
And just an FYI, our revenue forecast was built with the assumption that GDP would grow by 1.5% this fiscal year. Since the start of the pandemic, like everybody else, we've seen a lot of inflation. This is a double-edged sword for the state from the standpoint of not only does this impact our our spending as well, but also we do tend to see higher revenue collections. Anecdotally, I can share that a lot of our construction projects have come in significantly higher than what we originally expected. The cost of steel, for example, at the new swine barn at the Indiana State Fairgrounds tripled. However, we were still able to have a ribbon cutting before the state fair this year. And then in August of this year, we released $1.2 billion for the construction of a new prison in Northwest Indiana. And that's a project that we originally thought we could complete for $400 million. When it comes through managing through the next recession or economic downturn, we think we're pretty well positioned to manage without adversely impacting most of our critical programs. In addition to the $2.9 billion that we hold in reserve, my budget office has broad authority to hold back on appropriations and allotments. In my 18 years at the budget agency, it's not been uncommon for us to reduce the appropriations, reduce the allotments of the appropriations made by the General Assembly by 5%, 10%. And I can even remember during the Great Recession, we held back as much as 15% on several programs. I'll also add that we took a very responsible approach when it came to using our stimulus funds in order to avoid building fiscal cliffs down the road where the state would have to supplant that one-time federal money with ongoing state dollars. Our stimulus funding was largely directed to either one-time uses or pilot programs. And with the goal of those pilot programs, the hope there is that that will allow us to test things using federal dollars and decide if we want to go back and, and expand those with state dollars at some point down the road. So, thank you, Bill. Thanks a lot, Zach. That's a great rundown of one state's perspective on this. We may come back to Kate just to see how Colorado is doing, but let's turn to cities right now. Matt Stitt comes to us from Philly. He was the, the city's former city council CFO. He's now got a, a broader perspective working for the advisory firm PFM. So tell us, Matt, start with Philly that you have some very definite opinions on. And what, what are the issues for cities, local governments, with the economy on a cusp right now. Here you are in Philly. I, I know you've got some some very, very definite opinions on, on Philadelphia that's been through years and years of constructive fiscal reconstruction and fortification, going back to Mike Nutter and, and even before. So start there and tell us the economy's on a cusp. We've heard the possibility of recession. Where does this leave cities right now, which, which are not always trouble-free? Absolutely. It's interesting you say that because in my whole career, I always felt like the economy was always on the cusp, right? And one of the reasons why is because of cities, especially like Philadelphia, multi-year financial planning really tries to get ahead of these things. I think when cities are really thinking about their budgets, um, they're always trying to look ahead. You know, you have to take care of your core expenses, your core services now, but you're kind of looking ahead because there's there's a reinvestment into what where you want your city to be. And, you know, cash flow is really important when making those decisions. So if cities are already kind of doing, you know, the best practices of multi-year financial planning and annual stress testing, some of these things shouldn't be as much of a surprise when they happen. And don't get me wrong, I think the pandemic actually provided a lot of challenges for cities because of a lot of that predictability that cities are used to. Information was just more lagged and frankly, it was just a little bit more of an unprecedented situation since you had a health event that kind of precipitated a downturn. But with that said, anytime cities are looking at their finances, their resources and what they can provide for their jurisdictions, the first question I think a financial officer would ask is, what is in without our control? And then, you know, based on those things, what are we able to adjust revenue-wise? You know, what is our revenue setting and raising ability? And then obviously um, cost control-wise. And then once you answer those questions, and, and a lot of the panelists prior to me already spoke about, you know, what is your tax structure? That is your current tax structure is usually going to indicate where your cash flow crunches might be if there is a economic downturn. So for instance, cities that are more reliant on income taxes as a bigger proportion of the general fund revenues like Philadelphia might see a dip in cash flows a little bit more immediate than cities that are more reliant on property taxes as a greater proportion of their base. So then based on those factors, and once you understand where you're at now, then it's, and then it's also figuring out, okay, what are the core services we have to maintain? 
Do we have adequate, you know, levels for that? Also, what are our reserves? Now, reserves can be one time, so you have to be careful when using your reserves. You want to maintain an adequate reserve level going forward. And then thinking about what are our priorities in terms of what the government is supposed to be spending its resources on. A lot of these priorities may have shifted since 2020, or certain priorities may have become larger priorities going forward that might require more resources to address. For instance, housing might be more priority going forward. So therefore, if this is going to be more of a core priority, you know, what are, where are those resources coming from? Where are other government resources coming from? Some cities, including Philadelphia, but there are some other cities that are more reliant on other government revenue, um, whether that be state or federal government revenue. So, you know, you also have to be very conscious of if you're one of those cities, you know, you might have less control over those streets. So what do you do from a local level to ensure that you provide that adequate and core service? So once you kind of figure out where you're at today, how that might attack your cash flows, a lot of cities right now are actually in a surplus position, but that's because there's a lot of federal funding that still yet to be unsent. And there's still a few years of that tailing off. If you look at some multi-year financial plans of local governments, you'll start to see some of their fund balances tail off a little bit when that federal funding is up and has to be spent. That's when the important question of what does our permanent tax structure look like going forward? Based on that, and we've already heard a lot of transit, right? You've heard a lot of workforce. What is the workforce going to do? How are companies going to rebound in terms of hybrid work environments? What does that do to commercial property tax bases in, in central city districts? Does that need to convert to residential? That mix may produce certain different revenue predictions, uh, projections going forward. What does transit look like? You know, transit took a huge hit during a pandemic, and I believe now it's recovering, but still not to pre-pandemic levels. Transit systems are also underfunded prior to the pandemic. So, you know, how are transit systems going to be funded? How are they going to be used in coordination with the city's new work environments? And then how are governments going to respond to all this? Now, not to complicate things a little bit more, but local governments also have a, a, a vacancy issue right now. So how are governments going to find resources to restaff to also provide these services as well? But at the end of the day, cities over time have been resilient. And I think part of the reason why they have been resilient is because of some of this planning. There's been prior recessions. So there's playbooks of what to do if you are need to respond very quickly. And again, it really just starts with that core service and maintaining that core service. And that's exactly what lots of cities did during the pandemic. They reverted back to core services. They figured, what do we need to do to get through this period? So we recognize and hopefully realize what a new normal environment starts to look like to better be able to predict, you know, what our finances will look like going forward. Well, thank you very much, Matt. That was terrific. And I want to begin with you, Matt. You have explained the increased resilience of cities like our city right here, Philadelphia, and innovations and good policies put into place by people like Ron Dubo, our finance director, who's been long-term focused on these issues. So is the resilience of cities across the board so that they're bulletproof? Would you go that far to a recession? Or are potential long-run structural problems like pension debts and and also cities that are particularly in the potential crosshairs of post-COVID remote work, are they still, is there a bifurcation here? Chicago, Detroit, New York City, San Francisco. Uh, let's start with you, Matt, but then I do want to get your views on this, Eric and Kate and Zach from your position as well. Start with you, Matt. Sure. It's a, it's a great, great question. You know, I think lots of cities have historically, they've dealt with, you know, cash flow crunches, downturns, and we've seen recessions. You know, I came out of college during the Great Recession. You know, that was a pretty bad one. And in lots of cities, weren't, it was a little bit less certain on how they would recover, but they did. I think resiliency in certain cities like Philadelphia look like during a pandemic. Part of the reason why they were a little bit more resilient is because their downtown mix is a little bit more residential. Not something that may have been predicted prior to pandemic, but nobody could predict a pandemic and what that would necessarily do to an economy, at least I couldn't. So that was something that turned out to be a nice resilient factor that Philadelphia had at that time. Some of these issues, though, that these cities are continuing to face, you know, they were facing my whole lifetime. These are long term structural issues. Now, when it comes to like pension, 
and pension reform. Now, Philadelphia had a little bit of a pension issue a few years ago, but they decided and we had decided to undertake pension reform. It took years and it looks like the pension's in much better shape, but that requires cash resources. You know, so you take care of one problem, there might be, you know, you might be pulling cash, at least for that moment in time from somewhere else, education, street paving. I mean, you can keep going down the list. There's certain core services that certain communities just want more of. That's that's, just a, that's a great point, Matt. And I want to come back yep. to that sure. question of spending on social programs. But I want to turn to Eric. Do you see cities like New York City that are potentially in the crosshairs of work from home as well as a potential recession, potentially at risk in any sense? Or are they resilient because of the planning? So thank you, Susan. Um, my expertise is, is primarily in state governments, but I, I can definitely talk about some of our views on local governments. And a city like New York, San Francisco is another one you mentioned. Those are two cities that obviously get a lot of attention in terms of the potential implications for work from home. And we, we look at data from Castle Systems in terms of the occupancy levels, people in the office and New York and San Francisco are perpetually at the lower end of that data set. And while certainly that presents some challenges for those cities, we still think the credit quality of both cities is fairly high. San Francisco, we rate at AA plus. New York City, we rate at AA, both with stable outlook, so very high on our rating scale. We think absolutely there are challenges, but we think the cities are also pretty pretty well positioned to manage those. In New York, I know particularly well, there's a tremendous amount of long-term fiscal planning that goes in, into their budget building and their fiscal planning. And, and obviously, they, they have a number of issues they need to address, but we think the city and San Francisco as well are able to address those over the long term. And that, that's what's reflected in our credit rating. So certainly challenges, certainly changing dynamics, but things that both cities we think can withstand and absorb from a credit perspective. So this multi-year planning is really critical as we potentially face a recession. Kate, you are perhaps the most pessimistic in terms of the outlook for the overall economy. What's the downside for states and local governments? Sure. I mean, and I've spoken a bit to to sort of the outside nature of the business cycle on state revenue in particular. So I think that that's one of the implications of, of the downside. One other, other thing to kind of conceptually think through might be deflationary pressures. We've come off of these really high and at times of inflation, COVID had a lot to do with that. Those transitory effects are, are largely coming off. So we've, for example, the transportation component has really come down and the housing component really remains high and represents upwards of 40% of the basket of goods, at least in the CPI index that's most commonly cited in the news, in the press. It's come down. It's still kind of the biggest driver of our inflationary pressure, but there's methodologically a bit of a lag between a drop in, say, housing prices and that indicator. So I expect us to see some downward pressure on on prices solely because of that housing component. If you couple that with a recession scenario, then you could see deflationary pressure kind of across the board. So fuel prices dropping and some of the more volatile components dropping, those deflationary pressures, you know, really not not a great thing for a lot of people, especially hey, thank you. borrowers. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to come back. Thank you, Kate. This is great. Yeah, Susan, I, I, I want to jump ahead. in. Ahead, I want to jump in with a related question, which perhaps affects more affects smaller communities than the big cities. I know Torsten has followed this, but I, I'm interested in the local perspective as well. Since interest rates started going up, and especially since the Silicon Valley and First Republic collapses or sales, whatever, whatever you want to call them, regional and community bank lending has really plunged. And that's the engine of so many economies. Construction, small business, they depend on their, on their local banks for everything from operating capital to money to build for capital purposes. Torsten, how, how is this going to play out? The muni market is a much less hospitable place right now because it costs so much more to borrow. So I'd be curious about that and everybody else. What's the impact of, of tight money uh, on on community development and state development? Yeah, and, and I mean, the, the macro backdrop is, of course, uh, that the Fed is still raising interest rates. Well, we'll see if they raise rates again here in November or December, but they have raised interest rates so much so that means that financial conditions have been tightening. And then on top of that, as you're mentioning, we have seen the regional banks get into a fairly substantial amount of turbulence in the last six months. And this has had some consequences also for lending. Uh, not only did the regional banks, of course, face higher borrowing costs as interest rates went up, 
But there have also been some questions raised about deposits in the regional banking sector. Now that looks more stable, and I expect that to continue. But certainly, that discussion was very significant here again earlier this year. On top of that, there's also been more debate about potentially more regulatory things coming to the regional banks. And third and finally, we've also had as interest rates have gone up, a number of banks, not only regional banks, but also larger banks, Remember, as a bank, when you have treasuries in your holdings, you can either have that available for sale, where it's marked to market, or you could have it held to maturity, where it's not marked to market. And a number of banks, in particular regional banks, decided to keep treasuries as held to maturity. And the consequence of that was that as interest rates went up, the value of their bond holdings went down. And that means that a number of banks are now seeing pressure from the holdings that they have of treasuries as interest rates continue to move up. And they Final way of looking at that, and this is the answer to your question, Bill, is that uh, the consequence is that you are seeing loan growth slow down, not only for small banks, but also for larger banks. And this is certainly an important backdrop. And that is lending across the board to consumers, to corporates, to real estate, commercial real estate. And that all has consequences, as you say, for construction, for local businesses, construction for companies that are building in the communities. Kirsten, I have a follow on for that. And this is also for Kate and for Eric. And that is, could we have a major surprise here? Could we have a major downturn? Simply not because of something that surprisingly happens, but because of the lags of monetary policy and because how tight the Feds, in fact, have been. So let, let me start with you, Torsten, but love your view on that, Kate. Comment, and maybe we can turn to Kate after. Yeah. So the Fed has a model that's mm -hmm. called FURBUS, where if you give a shock, that consists of about 250 equations. And if you give a shock to one of the equations and ask, what is the consequence of the broader economy if you raise interest rates 500 basis points, or now we raise them 550, but raise them quite significantly? The most important outcome of that exercise is that that will tell you that the Fed's own model answers the question, Susan, by saying it will take about four quarters before it will begin to see the maximum negative impact on the economy. And given the Fed has still been raising interest rates for the last 18 months on an ongoing campaign here for now quite some time, we will still see the ripple effects, meaning the four quarters over the next several, really over the next uh, 12 months, continue to have a negative impact on the economy. And we are seeing that already happening in delinquency rates for consumers going up on credit cards and auto loans and companies having a harder time financing themselves. So that's why for states and local governments, it becomes a very important issue about, well, if the cost of capital, if interest rates are going to stay high for another, say, 12 months, or at least nine months, which is what Fed Fund Futures currently are pricing, that means that we have another six, nine months ahead of us where it is going to be more expensive for municipalities to borrow, and it is going to be expensive for state and local governments to borrow. Kate, your thoughts, and then Eric, please. Kate. Sure. Yeah, so not only is it incredibly difficult to, to predict the timing of the start of a recession, but also the severity, in part because recessions kind of build on themselves. If businesses stop hiring or lay off workers, then you have a drop in consumer activity that then leads to businesses laying off more workers. And so you can have these spirals downward. So yes, I, I do think that it is possible that we could see kind of a more severe recession, just in that recessions can build on themselves. Eric, your thoughts about could we see a relatively significant recession, not just a soft landing or a landing, or you just and and back up. Fitch is predicting a recession. Is that correct? Correct. Yes, we we expect that growth is going to start slowing in terms of pace by the fourth quarter of this year, and then move into a relatively mild recession by historical standards in the first half of next year. Negative growth in the first two quarters of next year. Now, to and, be fair, and, and, yeah. and just to be fair, negative yep. growth of how much? So that's an important point. Um, so overall for, for the year, we still actually expect overall growth in 2024. So we're talking about but a small amount. Pretty modest recession like again by historical standards. Something total for the so, year. So, something right? along those lines, exactly. And recession and of how much in the first half? In the first half of the year. So very mild by historical standards. And I think that the important point here is that we have pushed back that forecast several times. We do a quarterly update to our economic outlook. So we've we pushed that forecast back several times. And part of the reason is the resilience that we've seen in the economy, consumer spending, labor markets holding up better than we had anticipated. But as we've alluded to a few times, there are absolutely 
cracks showing. I mean, on labor market side, for example, we have seen, and Kate alluded to this earlier, employment growth still happening at the national level, but definitely slowing in terms of its pace. We're now below where we were actually pre-pandemic in terms of monthly gains on the labor side and the payrolls. And when you look at a state-by-state basis, we see an even wider disparity, right? We have states like Utah, which are still seeing double-digit gains in growth and employment when you look from the start of the year. And on the flip side, you have states like Rhode Island who are actually trailing and we're seeing losses in, in non-farm payrolls. Um, so, so there's more and more of a disparity across the states that we're seeing, certainly in, in terms of the labor force environment. So whether or not there's going to be a deeper downturn, I, I'm not going to try to predict that. I'm not the economist in the room here, certainly. We do think states are, are pretty well positioned for volatility, though, given the, the fact we talked about primarily the, their strong reserves and their, their ability to really manage spending. So, let's, lo- let's localize yeah. this a little. Can we, and, and, and Bill, I was going to turn to Zach right, right now. Well, let, ahead, yeah, then let me just sort of localize this with Zach and, and Matt also. So number one, what are you guys seeing in terms of revenue collection, sales tax, income tax, corporate and personal income tax? What kind of impact of this tightening period are you seeing, if any? And then number two, we have, we're going to deal with this in our next special briefing next month, but you have a powerful tailwind, I guess, still from the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, the CHIPS Act, and the Inflation Reduction Act. There's a lot of federal capital money still going into the economy, and that creates, presumably will create jobs, will create tax revenue. So how does this all balance out when you're looking at the books every month? Yeah. So in in Indiana, as I was mentioning earlier, approximately half of our budget comes from sales tax. And while that is showing some softening, at least it's not growing as much as it was before, we're still sticking very close to forecast for this fiscal year. In regards to individual income, really about the same, maybe some slight softening there, but overall very close. Oddly enough, where we're picking up, it's probably not even odd, but where we are exceeding forecast right now is our interest earnings. That is normally one of our very minor um, revenue categories and is actually up significantly this year compared to forecasts. I would go back to, if, if it's okay, to, to the topic of resiliency and just you know how, how we're addressing that in Indiana is really trying to make the future easier to manage as much as possible. And, and so in addition to kind of replenishing our reserve balances, we have tried to get caught up as much as possible on, on any outstanding pension liabilities. I think we've moved over approximately $4 billion in the last year, extra payments to our pension plans. We have tried to address um, any deferred maintenance that we have in our system. And then also we've, we've defeased pretty much every bond that we can that is callable at this point. We, we have defeased those. And so really we're, we're trying to lower our, our cost of operations going forward. Just remind us again for, for the, that's one of those words that, that gets me every time. Tell us what defeasing is. I would say it's comparable to paying off your mortgage early. And sometimes that is literally you're mailing a check to, or maybe not mailing a check, but you're actually paying those off early. Other times you're setting money aside in escrow, kind of the net present value needed to make all those payments in the future. But one way or another, any place that it's made sense to do that, we, we have done so. And that's been a, a hallmark of a, of a lot of states with with, including very heavily indebted states like New Jersey, New York, California, they weren't allowed to use federal ARPA recovery money to pay off debt, but the but all the money coming in for other programs frees up cash to let you pay off debt and let you do stuff that may not be specifically allowed under the law. That's right. Yeah. Matter. Yeah. What's the pattern that, that that you're seeing at the local level? No, I was going to say I think we call that blending and braiding to maximize your funding streams, and that's exactly what you try to do. The local governments will. Well, obviously, we have local matches. You want to take advantage of every other government dollar. But that's what happened a lot during the pandemic as well. You know, what are the revenue streams? Where are they coming from? If there's additional aid coming from elsewhere, is there a chance to switch some core revenue towards another core service? And again, I'm going to go back to housing as an example. You know, Philadelphia, I thought, did a great job in their rental assistance program. Um, was nationally recognized for that. Made a very intentional choice to shift a lot of resources towards housing prior to a lot of other cities and frankly, before they receive uh, the disbursements, the staff up and things like that to make sure they could get the actual payments out to the people who needed it, you know, to keep housing stable. So I think things like that, what Zach just alluded to in terms of what Indiana did, 
what was exactly what local governments try to do as well. You try to obviously replenish your reserves to a, to a healthy level. Once they're at a healthy level, you try to pay down unfunded liabilities or deferred maintenance, um, things that will lower your costs tomorrow. And that helps you prepare for a bad day tomorrow too. So it's not only just making government more efficient, maximizing revenue streams is also helping you prepare for a better day tomorrow. I think another thing, you know, with all these other demands, what local governments can do is a good job of what are the gaps? You know, local governments, I think, are sometimes the first to know what the actual gaps are in real time, whether that be in funding, whether it be federal money flows to states, states then flows to local government. When things aren't going as intended, it's usually local government that hears about it first. So if there are new priorities, new equitable priorities, particularly that were born from a pandemic, again, maybe things that cities and local governments were funding prior to, but are now more of a priority going forward. It might require more resources. Understanding what those gaps going forward are also incredibly important because these blips in terms of economic cycles are going to continue to happen. But these long term structural issues that local governments have been facing time after time aren't going to go away. So it's always how can you maximize the cash you have this year with these streams to keep attacking these challenges in the view of your local leaders, you know, in conjunction with your state leaders and federal leaders as well. Can I ask a jump ball question? Anybody jump in on this? Number one, it looks like we're heading for either a government, a federal government shutdown or maybe, God forbid, a series of federal government shutdowns. What impact does that have on states and localities and people? And a follow up question, which is with this Congress, it's hard pressed to do much of anything. If we get into a recession, is Congress going to do anything about it? Or are there automatic safety nets that kick in? Is, is this going to be a problem also of the lack of action from Washington immediate and down the road? Let me just add one macro comment on that. Remember, the Fed is trying to cool the economy down. The whole purpose of raising interest rates is that the Fed wants us to buy fewer cars. They want us to spend less money on our credit cards. They want companies to build fewer factories. They want companies to hire fewer people. And at the same time, we now have had a budget deficit at the federal level of 5-6% now and, and, and growing. And on top of that, we also have the CHIPS Act, Inflation Reduction Act. We had the infrastructure investment. It is as if fiscal policy and monetary policy are, are living a little bit different lives here. So the Fed would probably look at the support coming from the fiscal side and saying, well, if this still creates inflation, we just still have to press harder and harder on the brakes. So it's a real confrontation here between what's going on on the monetary side relative to what's going on on the fiscal side from my chair. It's a great point. Uh, what about if we have a, a federal shutdown? Is it going to make a big difference? So for us? Let, let me touch a little bit on that from the overall state's perspective. This is unfortunately a movie we've seen a lot of times, right? Where <laughs> It seems like a, a never-ending sequel series here. So this is something we've seen. We at Fitch recognize what the implications are for the most part. And for state and local governments, we've not seen significant implications on, on the credit side and on the fiscal and economic side. Most of these shutdowns have been relatively limited in length. Back pay for federal workers has been provided. So, so that economic impetus kind of continues to flow and states and local governments are able to withstand the shortfall for the most part, the temporary delay, I should say, in, in federal aid, right? The biggest flow of federal aid to state governments is in Medicaid, and, and, and that's largely unaffected by a shutdown because that, that's an essential need. So, so that continues to flow. So for the most part, we've not seen big problems on the state and local side. Of course, if things extend, if this time is materially different, of course, the implications could, could be different. But that's been our sense so far, looking back at historical patterns. Kate, your views on that? And then Zach, please. Kate, yeah, I, I honestly don't have a, a whole lot to add. I think Eric covered it really quite well. Okay, Zach, what does it mean for Indiana? Yeah, I think Eric is spot on. In Indiana, I mean, there, there's a potential to create a cash flow issue. But uh, as Eric mentioned, you know, our, our largest federal funding comes from CMS on the Medicaid program. And given that that authorization is already there and same with other federal programs, this would have to probably go on several months before it would really create some sort of serious issue for Indiana state government operations. Thank you for that. So we don't have to worry about a short government shutdown, obviously a longer one would have implications. And we also have the potential of a downturn and of inflation continuing. So if we are in a downturn, and this is a question for our economists, do you see the Fed stepping back from 2%? If we have a downturn, Bill has already opined that the federal government, and I agree, is not going to 
step in to attempt to deal with that recession. It's not in a position to do so. Of course, the Fed could reverse gears. Will the Fed reverse gears if inflation persists above 2%? Torsten? I think the answer is no. I mean, all FOMC members who are giving speeches about this are adamantly saying we will not change the target. Loretta Mester, the Cleveland president, has said it very the best way very clearly. We will maybe consider changing the target, but only once we're back at the 2% target. So you can't change the goalpost while you go along in the game. So I think that for credibility reasons, it does make sense that they're saying that they will not the inflation tar- uh, raise the inflation target and they will stick to 2%. So the consequence, of course, of that is that what we saw yesterday, they will just continue to press harder and harder and harder on the brakes. And this will have consequences also for state and local governments and cities, unfortunately, because the Fed is saying we got to squeeze all the inflation out until we get back to 2 at almost any cost. Even when he was asked, Jay Powell, yesterday, do you expect in your baseline a soft landing? He said, no, no. My baseline is not a soft landing. My baseline is that I got to get inflation back to two and I got to get full employment. That's what I've been mandated by Congress. I'm not being mandated to generate a soft landing. And that's a very important distinction. He's saying if this comes at the cost of squeezing more out of the economy, high unemployment, more problems for states, cities, locals, then he will create that problem, unfortunately, of course, because that does mean that we still have some downside risk. As Kate is saying, the downside risks, including of a longer recession, is still significant. Bill, back to you. Well, thank you, Susan. One last quick question. Just a show of hands. Are we in a recession now? Any hands up for that? So do we have a recession in the first half, just to get everybody on the record? If that's a yes, just... Wow, look at that. Zach? I've correctly predicted 20 of the last three recessions, so I don't know that I have any credibility in this area. So That's okay. Well, you- let me just note, Bill, that personal income, that income per capita has been down for this year. So hopefully we do not have a recession and worsen that outcome for states, local economies, and the United States as a whole. Bill, I think we're at time. We just about you. You're absolutely right. And we'll leave it at there with with our fingers firmly crossed. That is it for another special briefing. Up on the screen, you'll see our panelists and all their contact information. If you'd like to contact them, here's the information. It'll be on our websites, too, if you don't get it right now. Thanks so much, Susan, and to all of our panelists and to our wonderful audience for joining us today. We'll be back on Thursday, October 19th. Mark that date with another special briefing on the rollout of the Trillion Dollar Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, the IIJA for short. Our special guests will include Congressman Earl Blumenauer, American Road and Transportation Builders Chief Economist Allison Primo Black, George Washington University economist Leah Brooks, and some other surprise guests we haven't lined up yet. Watch your email and your websites for more details. And for heaven's sakes, please come back and join us. And Bill, Uh, we will at that answer the big question, why is it so hard for the U.S. to build infrastructure and for our states and localities to respond to the great needs of infrastructure? Looking forward to seeing you all soon. And thanks again, before we close, thanks again to the Volcker Alliance, the Penn IUR Board of Advisors, and the Century Foundation, and special thanks to our production team behind the, the mics and the cameras, Graham Dowd, Noah and Ritzenberg, Dallas Foster, Amy Montgomery, Diana Lind, and Arden Jordan. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.